All right, so we are actually coming to the conclusion of our Sermon on the Mount series. This is the last uh, message in that series. And the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And this last section, verses 13 to 29 in chapter 7 that Tyler just read, is intended to um, bring this section to a close. And you see that it's all about choices. Um, It is a time for choices and decisions. And there are two paths laid out before us. So this world that we navigate is a dangerous place. There are so many dangers, toils, and snares, so many threats, so many landmines. So as we go through this dangerous territory, there's also a lot of trouble within. So we've got internal turmoil, there's external turmoil. Internally, there are doubts and fears and anxieties and threats and Externally, there's obviously all kinds of trials and threats. They can happen inside the church. There can be false brothers and sisters. There can be, we sin against each other, and that can, you know, send us off into cynicism and skepticism. There are false teachers and false, there's false doctrine. And then in the surrounding culture, there's all kinds of, of threats and trials. You can easily start to feel like you're drowning or just start to wander and drift and, you know, think you're just going to fall away. So Jesus wants us to be safe. He wants us to know that he is a refuge for us, that he can keep us safe, that he is the rock beneath our feet and he can bring us safely home despite all of these threats and dangers. So we need to listen to him and we need to follow him. So Sermon on the Mount, we looked last week at chapter 7 verses 11 to 12 and verse 12 is a repetition of the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And it's like a bookend. So Jesus said back in chapter 5 that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, which the law and the prophets is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. He came to fulfill that. But he said, listen, I'm after a heart level righteousness, not just a religious veneer that you kind of paste on but internal heart change, change from the inside out where you would love God and love people sincerely, authentically from the inside out. And so that changes how you live. So it's not just not committing adultery, it's dealing with the lust inside and becoming new and really loving people and refusing to objectify people from the inside, even where people can't see. And so this is the kind of righteousness that Jesus is going to produce in his people. The Sermon on the Mount is not entrance requirements. It's the ethics of the kingdom. So he is going to produce this righteousness in his disciples. And that righteousness is summed up with love your neighbor as yourself, chapter 7, verse 12. And then now, verses 13 to 29, the rest of the chapter is all about choices, these alternatives. There are two options before you. So we see a number of 
alternatives here. Two gates, two ways, two destinations, two kinds of fruit, two testimonies, two foundations upon which you can build your life. And it's a way of kind of repeating the same point over and over again. So this is a call here at the end of the sermon to go all in with Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the worthy master. And so let's follow him. That's where this passage takes us this morning. Because again, there's only two options. There are two ways to live. Look with me here at the first point, two ways in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate for the, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So lots of either or alternatives we're gonna find here in this final section and verses 13 to 14 begin with four sets of two. Two gates, two ways, two crowds or two groups and two destinations, okay? There are only two options, Jesus and life or rejecting Jesus, walking the other way, following yourself, following some other master, money, sex, power, whatever, and destruction. So it's not particularly popular to talk like this today that there's only two choices, only two ways to live. It's more popular to say there's many roads to God, many ways to heaven, just as long as you're sincere. You know, all roads ultimately lead to the same place. It's kind of like a mountain. And, you know, the longer you live, you go around the mountain and you see, oh, all those paths just end up at the same place, you know. But if you just give even a superficial consideration to, say, the the world's major religions, you have mutually exclusive truth claims. They can't both be true at the same time. Jesus can't be God in the flesh and just another prophet, for instance. So those who trust and follow Jesus need to go all in with him, which means you believe there's only two options. So we can't be embarrassed of this truth that Jesus is explaining here. It can be hard swimming against the current of relativism and pluralism in our world. We've got to count the cost here because many might think that we're crazy or intolerant or, you know, bigoted. We've got to be willing to travel the path less traveled. We, we can't be too deeply afraid of being viewed as strange or weird. We've got to expect that we're going to be going against the flow a lot of the time. So the main point here in these verses is enter through the narrow gate. The main question from that point is why? Why should I obey this command? It sounds hard. It sounds rough. Like, is the gain worth the pain? And if the wide gate leading to the broad road and that's where the crowd is going in that direction, we are certainly going to need to be warned and helped as to why we should not go with the flow. 
If the gate is small and the way is narrow and hard and few find it, I mean, that probably means it's going to be lonely sometimes. Maybe we're going to be the only Christian at work or in our family. We might be opposed by others, mocked, maligned, persecuted, whatever. We're going to need some good reason here to take this path. So that being said, I want you to see where the emphasis is here in these two verses. Let me read it again, and I'm just going to remove one set of the alternatives, okay? So here we go, verses 13 and 14 again. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, and those who find it are few. Do you see what I left out? If you remove the destination, there's no motivation left for going the hard path. It doesn't make any sense anymore. You're just left asking, why? Why would I do this? So with those two phrases intact, though, Jesus is saying you've got to be oriented to the end. And when you are, you will be able, willing to endure all manner of loss and pain in this life because what we long for is truest gain in the end, in eternity. Not treasure and joy that's cheap and only lasts for a few moments or just for the vapor of this life, but truest gain that lasts for eternity. Treasure in heaven, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So without the end in view, we wouldn't choose the hard way. We'd go the easy wide way, right? And that's exactly what Satan wants. So C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, which are letters written from the senior, like a senior demon to a, a you know, novice demon. So it's kind of a way, Lewis's creative way to help us not be ignorant to the schemes of Satan. So one of the letters from Uncle Screwtape to um, his nephew demon as he's trying to mentor him, he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So Satan wants the end to be out of sight, out of mind, the danger. But Jesus loves us too much. Ignorance is not bliss here. Jesus throws some cold water in our face in a loving way to get our attention. Remember, he also said, and this is later on in Matthew chapter 16, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's hard. That's a hard road. Just like this narrow path here. Just like the narrow gate. For whoever would save his life in this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life in this life for my sake, in order to follow me, will find it now and forever. Then he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world for just a vapor and then you forfeit your soul for eternity? 
Jesus loves us too much to not tell us the truth about the alternatives. He wants us to follow him because he wants to lead us to life now and forever, abundant life and eternal life. So he doesn't lead us through the narrow gate and on the hard way just for kicks. He leads us this way because it leads to life. That is the heart of Christ for us. He wants to, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So John Bunyan was uh, an English tinker. Tinker is the guy that would come around and, you know, fix your pots and pans. Um, he lived in the 1600s. So he did that and then he became a preacher. And for preaching the gospel, he was imprisoned. So while in prison, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and it was published in 1678. And since then, it has never been out of print, which is pretty amazing. So the book begins in a dream of the narrator, and he sees a man with a book in his hands and a huge burden on his back. So he's reading the book, and he grows increasingly concerned, crying out, what must I do? And he goes home, and his wife and children are asking him what's the matter because he's obviously, you know, really upset and concerned. And he says that he's learned that they are living in the city of destruction and judgment is coming unless they find a way to escape. They think he's like just lost his mind. So they put him to bed, you know, hoping that a good night's sleep will kind of bring him to his senses. In the morning, they check on him. He's no better. In fact, he's worse. Fitful sleep. So they respond by deriding him and sometimes chiding him and sometimes just ignoring him. And he's wrestling spiritually more and more. He's reading his book and he's going to prayer and he's taking walks and thinking this through. And on one of those walks, he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And just then he meets a man named Evangelist. And Christian tells him that he fears death and judgment. And the evangelist asks him why. And he says, because I'm afraid that this burden that's on my back will sink me lower than the grave and I shall fall into hell. An evangelist asks him, then why are you standing still? He says, because I don't know where to go. So evangelist says to him, do you see that distant narrow gate? And he tells him to go to that gate and he will be told what to do. And he begins to run, crying, life, life, eternal life. He just sticks his fingers in his ears to anyone who would slow him down. And then he comes to the cross and his burden rolls off his back and it rolls into an empty tomb and it's gone. So as the book continues, there are a number of dangerous fellows like Mr. Legality and the Flatterer that meet him on his way and try to lead him astray. So Bunyan didn't add those details out of the blue. He echoed the warnings of Jesus. So on the pilgrim way, if you're following Jesus, you're like a pilgrim. And we've got to watch out for false guides on this path. That's one of the dangers that we will meet. So Jesus next in verses 15 to 20 talks about these dangerous false guides that we need to beware of. So let's look at point two, two trees, verses 15 to 20. 
Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is warning us that there will be false prophets. Claiming to speak for God, they will lead people astray. And I think we should all just not think that we're too smart for this. You know, I could never have the wool pulled over my eyes, you know, pun intended there. Jesus doesn't give idle warnings. Paul says similar things. He also didn't give idle warnings. This is nothing new in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 14, there were lots of false prophets then also. So to Jeremiah, the Lord said, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. They're claiming to speak for me. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Even scarier is when the people who claim to trust God listen to and even love those lying words. So in Jeremiah 5.30, it says this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and my people love to have it so. So Jeremiah was warning the people because they were rebellious and they needed to repent and they didn't like the harsh message. They wanted the happy message. They wanted their ears tickled. So they loved the false prophets who just told them what they wanted to hear. But then it says in Jeremiah 5, but what will you do when the end comes? Ear tickling doesn't prepare you for reality. So we must beware. But you can imagine the question I'm sure may be rising up in your mind is how do we tell the difference? How do we know the difference between a true prophet and a false one? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this, but let's just kind of stay home here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uses two images. The first is that these false prophets have the appearance of sheep, like they're part of the flock, you know, followers of Jesus. But in, under that guise, they're really ravenous wolves. So why does a wolf come around sheep? Not just to hang out. He comes to feed on the sheep. Again, this is not new. So, and this, God is not happy with people like this. He has some really harsh things to say about wolves that disguise themselves in sheep's clothing. Ezekiel 34 is a powerful passage and warning. Okay, so the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, verses 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
Shepherds are the leaders. They're supposed to lead well, but instead they're more like wolves. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You're feeding on them. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So spiritual leaders who are following Jesus, sheep who follow Jesus, and then they become shepherds of the flock, under shepherds under Jesus, Spiritual leaders should feed and protect and care for the sheep and do so tenderly, not harshly with force and harshness. They're not to feed on the sheep and use them selfishly to care for themselves. They're to be a blessing to the sheep, not a threat. They are to lay their lives down for the sheep, not take life from the sheep, not use the sheep. They are to protect the sheep, not be self-protective. So those are some of the ways that we can discern false prophets from true prophets, those who speak for God. Jesus then changes the metaphor from wolves to trees. You'll recognize false prophets, teachers, false teachers, by their fruit. And these two plants that Jesus mentions here, the thorn bush and thistle, um, the people that heard him in the first century would know that he was talking about the buckthorn. It had this little berry on it that kind of looked like a grape from a distance. And then also this thistle bush had a little flower that looked like a fig from a distance. But upon closer inspection, it would become clear that these things were not edible. So that's the point. It could seem from a distance for a while that this is a, false, or this, this is a true prophet, a, a true teacher, a true guide. But upon closer inspection, it will soon become known what this person really is. You'll know them by their fruit. So how would you recognize counterfeit spiritual leaders? Well, it's going to come out in doctrine and it's going to come out in deeds, ethics, okay? What they teach and how they live. So it could be heresy, denying something about Christ, you know, usually by addition or subtraction. So it's Jesus plus fill in the blank in order to be right with God. That leads people away from Jesus to some other gospel but in his name, or subtraction, you know? Oh, peace, peace, everything's fine. When there is no peace, like there's no need for repentance. There's no judgment to come. Claiming to be Christian, but maybe universalist in orientation, denying the judgment, denying hell. So it can be heresy, it can also be ethics. So lots of warnings in, say, Jude and 2 Peter, where these false teachers, false prophets that kind of worm their way in, sensuality, love of money, greed, abuse of power. So this world is a dangerous place. <laughs> there are some dangerous so-called spiritual leaders out there. 
we've got to beware. Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of light. And so also, false prophets are going to use just enough truth to make their false teaching or their hypocritical living believable. So we've got to beware. Warren Wearsby wrote this. He says, Saint, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel, Galatians 1, preached by false ministers, the super apostles that Paul has to deal with in 2 Corinthians, producing false Christians, and Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers, the tares with the wheat. So this is a call, brothers and sisters, to stick close to Jesus to tune our ears to him, to keep our eyes fixed on him, to soak in his word. The word will slowly and surely shape our powers of discernment and also tune our spiritual senses so that we can sniff out when something is fishy. So again, think of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Give that spiritual leader a the Beatitudes test, for instance, is there poverty of spirit? Is there mourning over sin? Is there mercy? Is there a peacemaking disposition? So the more that we soak in the word and tune our ears to Jesus, the better we'll be able to sniff out a counterfeit, to see a phony. But again, we need help with this. It's one of the reasons why membership in a faithful church is so important. So, for instance, faithful, qualified elders, shepherds of the flock are tasked with the responsibility to guard the flock. So the Apostle Paul, he knew his end was, was coming. He knew he was going to die soon. He's on his way to Rome, and he pulls the Ephesian elders aside, the shepherds, the spiritual leaders in that in that city, and he says some wonderful things to him, but we'll just look at a couple verses here. Acts 20, 28 to 31. He says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's so precious to him. So take care of it. And then he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So elders, you better get ready to be defensively protective of the flock. And then in verse 30, he says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Judas was among the disciples of Jesus. So this should not surprise us that there will be some from among our own selves that will begin to speak twisted things. So let me just give you an illustration of how this can happen. So this is from an article written in early 2000s. Um, so there's something radiant about Carrie. She certainly doesn't seem the type to, to commit self-mutilation or to pull her hair out in clumps or to assume mangled positions on the floor until her muscles scream, yet that is exactly what she did for the better part of two years. 
The person who led her into hell, think quote unquote, did not or did so by vowing to bring her closer to God. I fell in love with his visions, she says, his purpose, with his dreams. I aspired to be like him. I wanted to be around him. These days, Carrie is not so enamored of the man. We'll call him Tariq, who drew her in. Carrie met Tariq in the fall of 2000 while studying psychology at Wheaton College in Illinois. A self-proclaimed envoy of God, Tariq lured Carrie and three others into his cult with the prospect of a mission to his native Pakistan where they would minister to an obscure religious sect. I know it sounds silly, Carrie says, but I really wanted that challenge, an unreached people group, unreached with the gospel. And their plans were to go and reach this people group that Tariq was from. At first, this is what Carrie and the others thought they had done. Tariq seemed to be the epitome of pious devotion. He offered me Christianity to the extreme, says Carrie. I was attracted to that. He would tell his group that God spoke through him, his eyes burning with religious zeal. He would have them pray for eight hours a day until they entered ecstatic trance-like states. Even when Tariq started to grow more and more controlling, more and more demanding, the group rationalized his behavior. Andrew, another former member of Tariq's group, said this. He'd say, well, if if we were going to Canada or Mexico or something, maybe we'd get by with a little bit of prayer, a little bit of discipline or training, but this is Pakistan. We've got to have Olympic training. As the group trained for their Pakistan trip, Tariq's behavior got progressively worse. He deprived them of sleep and food. He kept them weak and pliable. We'd be on email with him hours and hours daily into the wee hours of the morning, Carrie says. We'd report back to him what had gone on during the day, what we had eaten, who we had spoken with. He wanted to know everything. He had different procedures he wanted us to go through for washing ourselves and on and on. And it got worse, beatings and physical and psychological abuse. And his name was not Tariq. It was Feroz Galwala. And he visited the church that I was at when we were living in Wheaton in 2000. And he fooled a lot of people in the area before his fruit was known and betrayed him. He fooled area Christian magazines and missions organizations and had them publish information about his ministry There were several students in the college ministry that I led that were regulars in his prayer group. I went to one of his prayer meetings with another pastor from our church. And, you know, again, unreached people group. I mean, it was kind of like exciting and wow, this guy's so passionate and so serious. But, you know, something didn't sit quite right. It was hard to put a finger on at first. And I became increasingly concerned as each of our students, especially the the most solid ones, started to withdraw slowly because of what they saw in his character. There were still a few of our students attending and some of those students didn't react so well when I started to voice concerns to them. So again, there were issues of lack of accountability, Increasing controlling nature, manipulation, and lies. It's subtle at first, but it obviously became more and more evident as time wore on. And then ultimately, it wasn't long. Sadly, it was too long because of the damage done to this girl and these other guys that 
followed him closely for a couple years, but it wasn't long before his fruit was visible. So here's a warning that we all must heed. Beware of leaders who refuse to subject themselves to the accountability of the local church and its spiritual leaders. Learn to look for fruit. This does not mean we all need to turn into heresy hunters and spiritual conspiracy theorists. You know, there's like these discernment blogs that it's like their life work to just be negative and nitpick and find everything wrong with everybody. Those, those things are toxic. What this does mean is that we need to stick close to Jesus. We need to follow in the way that he prescribes. We need to test leaders against his character and his words. We need to heed his warnings. It means we need to get so familiar with good fruit in our own lives and in the lives of those around us that we can smell and recognize bad fruit when it gets within range. This world is a dangerous place. There are a lot of false guides and we've got to beware, brothers and sisters. It can be difficult to discern. We can start to fear and be suspicious, especially if you've been duped in the past. Who can I trust? You can trust Jesus. He will never lead us astray. He will never lie to us. And he can and will train our powers of discernment so that we'll be able to discern a false prophet from a true one and not be led astray. So that's the second set of alternatives, the two trees. Now on to the third set of alternatives in verses 21 to 23, two testimonies. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, at the end, the judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is not just a threat out there that we must be aware of, though there is a connection here in this section with the previous warning about the false prophets, right? You see the connection? So there can be people who prophesy in Jesus' name and even cast out demons, whether for real or at least claim to, and do mighty works in Jesus' name, and they're not the real thing. They're actually workers of lawlessness. So you can see how it ties to the last section. Jesus is saying to these imposters, talk is cheap. You may say my name, but that doesn't mean that you can magically harness my power. Doesn't mean that you're truly committed to my purposes. It also doesn't say that these were, you know, faithful Christians for a while, and then they just started to veer off the path and walked away. He says, no, they were never the real thing in the first place. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So again, this, <laughs> we can't deal with every question maybe that this section kicks up, but you might be wondering, how can someone prophesy, cast out demons, and do many works in Jesus' name and not be empowered by God, not be the real thing. Well, was Balaam a prophet? Yes. He was not a prophet of God, but he still 
knew some things about the future and even God revealed them to him. So there are false prophets that sometimes get some things right, whether that comes from God or whether that comes from Satan. There are also false prophets and wonder workers. We are explicitly warned in Scripture that there will be counterfeit signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So, again, can we always tell whether it's just like fake, you know, like health wealth preachers and the healings that happen? A lot of that is fake. But it can also be demonically inspired. It can be done by Satan. False signs and wonders to draw people away from the truth. Again, enough truth to make it believable. Enough power, quote unquote, to make it believable. So do the health wealth preachers do things in Jesus' name? Of course, they use it like a magic formula, like a talisman. But again, they do stuff in Jesus' name. So this ties in with that false prophet thing in this previous section, but let's be careful not to hold this out at arm's length as if it's just a a warning for false prophets out there. It's also a false profession of faith that is being warned against here. There's two testimonies, a true one and a false one. A person can do a lot of ministry, a lot of things in Jesus' name. And maybe their confidence is more in their spiritual performance, their righteousness, than in Christ as their righteousness. So the true testimony is the one that comes from a heart that is soft and responsive to the will of God. Not a worker of lawlessness that, oh, but I've done all these things for you. It's not just lip service. It's a changed heart with a desire to follow Jesus, to do the will of God from the heart. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount has been all about from the beginning, right? Again, not entrance requirements, Jesus came to make a new covenant so that the law could be written on our hearts by the Spirit so that we would want to follow Jesus. He makes us new from the inside out by his grace as we trust in him. It's a gift, a free gift. But when we receive that gift, when his grace is operative in our lives, we change. It's not just this thin religious veneer He is Lord, and trusting him means we take him seriously, following him seriously. So Jesus' warning of talk is cheap lip service. Later on in Matthew, he says, he warns along these lines in in verses 7 to 9, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So if that's what our faith is if it's just a cheap you know talk is cheap mere profession false profession that cheap talk will cost us everything depart from me I never knew you Jesus's talk is not cheap when he declares something it is absolutely true and done so this is a sobering word from the Lord This is the polar opposite of well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So if lawlessness is what you're doing, again, we're all sinful, but this, uh, talking about kind of a, a hypocrisy that has external veneer Christianity, but really 
you're going a different way in your true heart. If lawlessness is what you're doing, then saying, Lord, Lord, is just lip service. It's hollow homage. So if verses 21 to 23 are about the danger of mere lip service, verses 24 to 27.4 are about the danger of mere ear service. So let's look at point four, two foundations, verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, hearing, doing, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So everyone is building the house of their life. You're building the house that is your life. And there are two foundations, two foundation options. One is wise, the other is foolish. Both of these people here in 24 to 27 are religious. Both of them hear the words of Jesus. You see that? Hear these words of mine. Both of these people most likely go to church, although not necessarily. There's lots of people that say they're Christians and they just don't need the church, which is a danger zone thing to say because you don't, I mean, Jesus says so clearly how important the body is and don't forsake assembling of yourselves together and so forth. So the difference is whether or not the hearer is also a doer. Jesus, again, is not promoting works righteousness. He's laying the foundation for what his half-brother James will say later on. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Faith by itself, just a mere profession like the demons have, if it does not work, if it doesn't bear fruit, it's dead. It's not real faith. And nobody's justified by dead faith, fake faith. So look at this, you know, two foundations thing, two houses thing. When the weather is good, these two houses probably look pretty similar. They might both look pretty good. But when the storm comes, that's what proves the fool and the wise man. And this text is actually kind of an early warning, storm warning system. <laughs> What we do matters. We are responsible for our choices. They matter intensely. We are making choices to either follow Jesus or not every day. Who are you? Who will you be? Every human being is making choices that will shape their character and destiny. So if you're just acting, if there's anybody here listening to me that's just acting, play acting Christianity on Sundays and you know at other appropriate times, but if Jesus really isn't your living functional Lord, then I plead with you to listen to his words now and evacuate that house that you've built on sand and run to Jesus who died to make you new and authentic from the inside out. And he wants you to build your life on the rock so that when the storms come and certainly when the storm of his judgment comes at the end, you will not be swept away. 
So this is like a merciful flood that could knock out the card house of your life because Jesus wants to build your life with stones, like on a firm foundation. So Frederick Bruner said it this way, Jesus does not say that a house built on his words will, for example, glow in the dark or miraculously expand into a mansion or in any way be particularly impressive. The only impressive fact about this house is that it will be standing when the storm is over. Matthew's Jesus almost always describes the Christian life in terms of survival rather than sensation. Nor are we told that life built on the foundation of Jesus' words will be spared rains, floods, or winds, as though Jesus' teaching were a kind of talisman against trouble, like a lucky rabbit's foot. Realistically, Jesus says the same storms hit thoughtful disciples as hit thoughtless ones. Obedience to Jesus' words, then, is not so much a protection from troubles as it is a protection in them, in and through the troubles. Just as rock under a house does not shield from storms, it supports during the storms. So there are two ways, two trees, two testimonies, and two foundations. But brothers and sisters, there is only one Savior and Lord. Let's look at the last two verses verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He didn't have to say, you know, thus and so rabbi says this and thus and so rabbi says that. He didn't even say, thus says the Lord. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, He said, truly, truly, I say to you, which is just like the height of pride and hubris, unless this is Emmanuel, God with us, speaking authoritatively. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. So let's trust and follow him. He's the way and path. He blazed the trail for us making the way so that we could be acceptable to God, that we could be reconciled to God, all of our sins forgiven, trusting in him. He is our guide. He's our captain. He's the trailblazer. He knows the way. We should trust him and follow him. He is the way. He's also the truth. He's never going to deceive us or lie to us. He is the life. He's the source of our life. He gives us life. We must be born again, right? He is the way of life. He is the way to life. He wasn't a politician. His speech wasn't political, eloquent emptiness, you know, making promises that he couldn't fulfill. He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear because he's the truth and he speaks truth. He wasn't a people pleaser. He wasn't a chameleon. I mean, it's crazy how he talks here in this section. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven. Like, you see, he's saying, 
I am the living Lord. I'm going to be there at the judgment and I'm going to be the one who lets people in or sends them away. That's amazing. That's crazy what he's saying there unless he really is who he says he is. I am the Lord of the kingdom. I am the Lord of the entrance to the kingdom. I'm the one that's going to meet you at the end. I am the master and I must be your master. So to close here, C.S. Lewis, in his last sermon, he said this. He claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There's no bargaining with him. That is, I take it, the meaning of all those sayings that alarm me most. Thomas More said, if you make contracts with God, how much you will serve him, you shall find that you have signed both of them yourself. William Law said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you have chosen instead. Those are hard words to take, Lewis says. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, we love you. Ever adore you, Lord. So let's say this, what we've sung. Let's say this. Don't you want to say this with, with your lips and with your life? All we have, all we need, all we want is you. There are two alternatives, two paths, but there's only one Savior and Lord. So really, there's only one clear path. So let's trust Jesus alone and follow him. If you've been wandering, you realize you are only one step away from faithfully following Jesus. <laughs> Jesus started out his earthly ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you're walking the wrong direction, all you have to do is turn around and then you're following Jesus. He just wants you to trust him. If you haven't been following Jesus and you're, you're sobered and you wanna become a Christian, you're also only one step from building your life on the rock. So I appeal to you. Trust him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to close fittingly by singing the song, Give Me Jesus. So let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for coming for us. You are the perfect shepherd laying down your life for the sheep, making the way that we could follow you all the way home and promising to be with us no matter what the threats and trials and struggles within or without, with us all the way, 
We thank you. We praise you. Help us to trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray it all in your name. Amen.